one of the things that can be really helpful to do is if you are prospecting and trying to get in touch with and sell to executives to ask the executives at your company what it's like being sold to, what their email inbox looks like, what the cold emails they receive look like, what the LinkedIn messages look like, the voicemails, and it'll give you a really good idea of what you're competing with. And I'm super excited for our conversation today because I'm going to be talking to Tim Harsh, who is the CEO at Meltwater. And you're listening to Outbound Squad, by the way. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Jason Bay. You can call me J-Bay. And this podcast is all about helping you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So I speak with top reps, sales leaders, other experts to help you land more meetings from your cold outreach and to close more deals by doing better discovery, better demos, negotiating, all of that kind of good stuff. So what we're going to unpack with Tim is being an executive, one of the things I really pick his brain on is, you know, what does he want to take away when he hops on a sales call? He wants to know, you know, how does what you do compare to how your competitors do? What sets you apart? What outcomes? It's very outcome driven. And you're going to learn a little bit more about how you can speak to executives. We're also going to talk about the story behind Aller. So how he helped create Aller. There was a uh, <laughs> there's a story he's going to share about trying it out and failing and spending two hundred thousand dollars on Reddit, and he's also going to talk about how you know insights driven selling has really transformed over the years with all the access to information that we have as sellers now to help us have more informed conversations. And lastly, he's going to talk about some sales no nos and tell a story of a time that he was sold to in a way that he didn't really respond that well to. So. Lots of good stuff in here. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave a quick review. We'd love it. And you know what? If you like this podcast, share it with someone on your team. Share it with your sales leader. You know, without further ado, let's get to the interview. One of the things that you know, we were talking about just in our prep and before hitting record here is uh, it's always interesting to hear the backstory behind a product because what we see as Aller now, I'm assuming when you were sitting at the kitchen table, there's a story here, <laughs> you know, of kind of the thoughts that went behind it. I'm sure it was much different. Uh, just, just a hunch I have, you know, <laughs> then what did you like envision Aller to be when you guys were first sitting down and thinking about this idea when it first came to mind? Yeah. So it's, it's really funny. So the early days, you know, the original idea for Aller really came from my co-founder, Jim Fowler, who was the founder and CEO of Jigsaw. And Jigsaw was uh, pre Zoom info, pre you know, LinkedIn being as big as it is, all crowdsourcing of contact information, kind of the trading of business cards and um, we had worked together specifically on a project there for company information and realized there's this big need. The company information that's out there is really bad. Can we apply crowdsourcing to it? But as you say, it's shifted a lot over the years. What we originally started as was kind of a Wall Street analyst platform for deep research on companies as kind of our initial idea. And it was actually called Info Army, um, which also led to some pretty unique applicants coming in with uh, very different backgrounds than what you would expect in tech. I mean, former like special ops and stuff like that, applying, thinking we were in a totally different space than we were. 
Um, but you know, what happened was info army, it was a one-to-one model where one person's researching a company, putting in all that information. And we just realized that wasn't going to be nearly as scalable as what Owler eventually became, or, you know, be able to attract as big a community as we've gotten to today. So yeah, I, uh, I don't know how much you want to go into the roller coaster of the early days of startups, but um, there were a lot of shifts early on to go from kind of Wall Street deep research to you know the the sales intelligence platform that Aller has become. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple areas I think that would be good to go down, and a lot of the people listening to this and clients that I work with, or or people that you know follow our content, they're working at companies that are still trying to find park, uh, product market fit. You know, or they're just kind of getting product market fit, and the messaging is there, and it's really kind of early stages. Um, when did when did you guys know that you had product market fit? Yeah, it's an interesting question because we actually didn't focus on revenue for a really long time. So I'm a big proponent in the early stages for finding product market fit of actually charging money and not just giving things away for free. Because you know, yeah. there's a big difference between someone saying, "Oh yeah, I'd buy that," and you know, sure, that sounds great. I love that functionality versus, hey, here's my credit card information or I'm going to sign on the dotted line and have that be a real uh, commercial relationship where money is changing hands. And so uh, because we didn't focus on revenue for so long, I think that actually made it take us longer to get to that point. And so my advice to early founders is start charging early. And you know, the best way to know product market fit in my mind is if someone's actually willing to pay you for something. No, absolutely. In the early days, was it you, your co-founder, both of you, who was doing the sales? Um, well, Jim it has a massive sales background. So he was doing a lot of the early sales. He, uh, he was yeah. VP of sales at a number of companies. And I eventually kind of learned from him and started to do more and more of that. But um, he was doing a lot of the early sales in, in the super early days. Yeah, it's uh, you guys are like the dynamic duo there. When you have someone that has, because you studied computer science and that sort of stuff, and correct me right. if I'm wrong, you're kind of bringing a lot of the technical kind of parts uh, to it, at least at the beginning, and you got the sales minded and then combined. You know, it's it's a good uh, it's a good duo to have because usually, like with products, I've seen it's like one or the other, and mm-hmm. sales led, you know, founder, great. Right, but like building a good product and getting it to stick and all of that kind of stuff tends to be challenges in the opposite. You know, is kind of true on the other side. Um, how did you guys like the persona? I always, am always curious of like, okay, we're gonna create a product now for salespeople. How did you guys arrive, you know, at that conclusion that hey, we started as this thing that was like a Wall Street analysis tool, like you said. How did you guys decide that, okay, we're just going to double down and like really create a tool that's built for like salespeople and sales intelligence? You know, it's, it's funny. We kind of went full circle and it's one of those things where you're kicking yourself in the future and saying, obviously we should have seen that, you know, hindsight's of course, 2020, but the, the, one of the original impetuses for the idea was, you know, Jim learning that Salesforce spent a million dollars a year buying firmographic data from Dun & Bradstreet and purely for sales territory setting. And so, you know, as a response to that, we said, hey, we can go build a great business selling into, you know, sales operations, revenue operations for territory setting. And 
we had drifted away from that, of course, with the early idea. But what led us back to sales was as we built out the community, as we started to talk to people, where we saw the highest retention from a user perspective, where we saw the greatest ability and willingness to pay was actually among sales teams. And you know, they saw the immediate ROI of like, wow, if I, if I have all this data at my fingertips, if I know the right thing to say when I reach out, if I can build a deeper relationship because I'm better informed about who I'm speaking to, that was when we realized, oh, there's actually a real, you know, as you said, product market fit here that we can build upon. Um, and because we saw that influx where the majority of our users actually were coming from sales, we kind of doubled down on that path. So it was kind of a, a chicken and egg of, of building out a little bit, realizing there's some traction and then doubling down on that. So was there... With salespeople, were there a lot of people just kind of naturally from sales gravitating towards the product? And if so, was that kind of a surprise maybe at first? In the early days, it was. Um, you yeah. know, then, of course, once we started to message out to um, the sales community and, and build more of a, a rapport there, that was more expected. But yeah, it, it kind of happened organically. Which was really cool, and you know, it's fairly unique to a freemium model, which is what we have, where yeah. there is a free version, then there's a paid version, where we can attract a lot of people organically just via searching on, you know, Google or or DuckDuckGo or any search engine, and being able to, you know, find information on companies. And a lot of the people doing those searches and doing that research was actually salespeople, and continues to be. Yeah, I feel like salespeople are such a great audience too create stuff for because they'll tell a lot of people about it if they like it <laughs> exactly all the all the extroverts sharing the information it's it's uh it's so true <laughs> yeah um i'm thinking just because there's a lot of folks that listen to this that you know are either sales professionals or sales leaders and one of the things that i talk about a lot is like being able to get in the head of the people that you're selling to like your prospects and being able to kind of think about Hey, based on conversations we have with these people, what's important to them and how does our product or service that we're selling kind of like help them with the things that they care about? And I'm curious, just from a, a product or a marketing standpoint, what's it been like and what kind of approach do you guys have to like really sitting in the seat of the people using the product and like really understanding, you know, what they're trying to accomplish and all of the kind of friction that that gets in the way. How do you guys think about that at Eller? Yeah, we're we're huge on user research and we are constantly doing user interviews um, to yeah. find that out. And you know, actually in the early days, in one of our early pivots, when we were deciding whether to double down or not on sales, I personally went out and interviewed over 50 sales leaders to figure out, hey, oh, wow. what are the core needs? And that was one of the things that let us down the, pro the the path from a product perspective in many ways and figured out what are those early features. But on an ongoing basis, it's really critical. And so every month we're doing more user interviews and you know constantly learning new things. I mean, everything from the simple like, hey, this button is named something that's really confusing to, you know, oh, there's a new piece of functionality or a new technology that can be applied to what we're doing that could solve this problem in an even better way for salespeople specifically these days. Um, but yeah, it's not a once and done thing. It's it's very much an ongoing learning process. Yeah, because this is doing a, a customer or a prospective customer interview is something that we advocate for a lot because a lot of the folks 
in sales are either selling to a persona they've never really sold before, or they're just really kind of young in their sales experience. And you know, creating a good cold email or having a good talk track, you know, and a cold call, like having that language is super important. So I'm kind of curious uh, for you if you were sitting down with a perspective, uh, someone that wasn't an hour. Uh, user right now, and the goal of that conversation is not necessarily to sell them. What kind of questions would you ask a a sales leader just to like so people can kind of understand maybe how you think about this stuff and in learning what's important? What, what are some of the questions that you might ask someone? Yeah, I mean, starting from really the base level, um, as simple as like, how do you spend your time on you know a given day? You know, pick a pick a day during the week. What's what are you spending your time doing? Because you know, Owler's goal is ultimately to save people time. And, you know, that started from eliminating research to now, you know, integrating tooling into um, CRMs and, and Slack and Microsoft Teams. And, and all of that came from essentially, you know, the, a lot of these conversations and simply asking, you know, how, hey, Jason, you know, sales leader, how are you spending your time throughout the day? And, you know, we started to see these trends of like, wow, people are spending three, four hours doing research. There has to be a better way to do that. And you know now, what we find, and one of the reasons this led us to do a lot more, you know, integrations into tools, is that people are spending so much time living in ten different systems that it's really time-consuming, remembering all the login information, switching between tabs, remembering where things are, and so kind of the core of a lot of our interviews are just having people walk us through their current processes. And, you know, now zooming in even further beyond just how do you spend your day to, you know, walk us through uh, a typical closing cycle for you or, you know, how do you how do you log your calls? What are you doing pre-call? What are you doing post-call and figuring out where there could be friction that we could help streamline? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think this is a really good question for reps to be asking their prospects or their customers, you know like getting really detailed with the friction that people run into um, just throughout their day or that particular workflow. And like a really specific example I can think of is like just in even improving our training and coaching, just thinking about how the content is delivered to a rep and how usable that content is. And you don't really, like for example, one of the things that we do is help create playbooks. So that playbook usually exists within a Google Doc file. And that Google Doc file could be 30, 40 pages long. So you start to think about a typical workflow as a rep. I'm going to have my, I don't know, let's just say I have uh, outreach open, my sales engagement tool, and I'm about to make a phone call to someone. And oftentimes we don't think about to make that phone call with someone and to use the talk tracks that we created. That's like another document they have to have open and another page they have to scroll to. And that might have to be something they print out or have on another screen. And just observing people in their workflow and asking about it is extremely powerful. You know, it's extremely powerful. And I think that uh, a lot of times in sales, we're getting the conversation started with someone that's below the line, like someone that would be using the product or managing the people using the product and having a good understanding of like where that friction is it can help you have really just much better conversations with people. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Couldn't agree more. I think, um, you know, that's, that's a key selling point for ROI of a lot of products is, you know, streamlining, streamlining time and removing friction. And so you need to be able to understand 
what that actually is for someone. You know, I can't count the number of times I get pitched things to solve problems that I don't actually have. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, by truly understanding what someone's needs are, it makes it a much easier sale at the end of the day. No, absolutely. Uh, so that's a good segue into the next part of this conversation I wanted to ask you about it is, uh, you know, a lot of people are listening to this and selling to executives and, and people like you are, it's like if someone's selling something to Aller, a lot of times you're not going to be the person that, that's using the product, but someone in your position or someone in the C-suite at Aller is going to have a lot of influence, obviously, over like big ticket purchases, you know? Yeah. Um, my first question for you is just so people kind of understand uh, how an executive might think, uh, how do you think about where you choose to spend your time and energy and attention like in a typical week or a month, how do you think about what to prioritize your time and energy and attention on? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've heard it described in a lot of different ways from, you know, whack-a-mole to, um, you know, more structured approaches. And I, I fall in the more structured approach category of, I kind of rotate through different departments and, zoom in on what's going on and and what can be improved and where we need to focus, making sure, you know, teams are directionally aligned and, and moving in the same direction. And also that, you know, my role is helping to remove any roadblocks that are happening in those various departments. And so, you know, in that sense, um, I'll kind of rotate around throughout the week and, and zoom in on marketing, zoom in on products, zoom in on engineering, zoom in on sales. And, um, chip in on, on each of those. And so that does mean that if I get something that's pitching me a certain product for a certain department, you know, maybe I'm not thinking about it that day, but I will be, you know, a couple days from then typically. Yeah. How do you decide, like if we were to get a little more granular, how do you decide, um, like, like when you think about where Aller is investing, like let's just say software or professional services, for example, like in the work with those departments, how do you think about whether something is going to have a good ROI or not? Like when you're thinking about like the, the, the massive amounts of cash that get invested into these departments, how do you think about what's going to be like smart? How do you think about reducing risk? All of that kind of stuff I think would be really helpful for people to hear. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about these days is kind of the distraction factor of implementing new systems is really expensive yeah. the larger you get. And so, you know, being able to avoid that is is key. And so, you know, more more actionably, I'd say for anyone, for anyone pitching new software solutions, how is it going to be additive as opposed to yet another thing people need to log into, people need to you know, learn new processes around. And so that's a key thing that we look at from an ROI perspective is not just, you know, the the beneficial pieces, but actually subtracting out kind of what's it going to take, what's the overhead going to be for our team to get up to speed on this and then maintain it over time, as well as, you know, any complexity that's added to other teams. You know, if we if we need to implement a new tool, but our engineering team needs to go integrate something across the whole platform, you know, that goes from you know, what could have been the flip of a switch to maybe something that takes a month um, because it needs to get prioritized and then actually built. Um, so that's kind of how we're looking at it from a from a high level is, you know, positive ROI, how much time can it save the team? 
as well as what direct ROI can there be? Maybe it's improving conversion, maybe it's bringing in more leads, but then what are the costs internally for that too on the other side? Yeah. So along these same lines, if let's say that someone uh, at your company, a v, your VP of marketing, let's say, um, is wanting to bring in a marketing solution, I'm curious, how did how do you like stuff like that to be presented to you? Like, do you want to look at a business case? Like, how do you look at the numbers or the ROI? How detailed would you get on a, like a big ticket purchase? It definitely depends on the size of purchase. You know, if it's, yeah. if it's something small, um, you know, then, then not as much so, but if it's going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment, you know, that's going to get a much harder look. And, you know, as you yeah. go higher up in that, certainly, more and more and more of a deep dive. And, um, you know, what I would want to understand when evaluating that is how are we solving the problem today? You know, maybe it's human yeah. manpower. Maybe we have five people working on something that with a new tool, um, they would only need to spend half their time on and they could focus on other things. Or, you know, maybe we have some really antiquated tool that's kind of working, but, you know, doesn't have some of the capabilities of the new tool. And then I would also want to understand what else is out there. You know, we never want to just be making a decision in the silo. In a silo, we want to understand, like, okay, here's the thing we're evaluating. What's what's kind of best in class in the market? Is it this? Is it a different tool? And we just happen to hear about this other one first, and and kind of get that full spectrum, and then do a, an analysis of both. Do we want to invest in this right now? But then, if we are going to invest, which of those is truly going to um, have the best ROI for us. Yeah. How do you take in consideration, um, like if you're looking at uh, a couple different solutions, let's say that really the products are very kind of similar, you're probably getting the same thing. Is there anything that you would think about or guide someone on your team to think about over like vendor selection? Like what you would do outside of you know two solutions, let's, let's say it's a fairly commoditized thing. I'll throw out a silly example, like a CRM. Um, mm-hmm. And is there anything else that you would be looking at in terms of, like, how you were sold to, what the people have been like to deal with, like any of that kind of stuff that you would you would look at? Yeah, we we look pretty deeply at what it's like to to work with any of our vendors, and you know, we want to make sure that we're not just going to be another, you know, line item in the books that kind of gets forgotten about. It's like, great, we, we signed the contract. Now we've been tossed over the wall and we're in this ether kind of fending for ourselves, especially for higher touch items. We want to make sure that there's going to be the service and support. And maybe we can call up the rep even that we worked with and, and ask questions if we need to over time, or we're going to have some dedicated account support to make sure that we're you know, not going to be wasting a lot of time spinning our wheels, especially as we get up to speed on a product. And often you can tell that from how you're sold to, um, you know, in my experience where I I can think of a concrete example and I will not name names, but we were sold an analytics solution, um, you know, a number of years ago and great, great sales process. Awesome. First year, we loved the product. And a year in, they came back and tried to triple the price on us. <laughs> and, you know, that, that really gave us a sense of how we were valued as a customer of, you know, our usage hadn't yeah. tripled, our usage was the same. I mean, there was no justification for the price increase aside from, you know, what it felt like to us of just being 
a number in the books and that they were trying to squeeze more out of. And, you know, tripling in price is obviously especially significant. And we were still an early stage startup at the time. And so as a result of that, we we looked elsewhere. And, and that has always stuck in my mind, even in the early processes of, are we just going to be another number? Are we instead going to, you know, be able to view this mutually as a partnership and really work together on the you know vendor client relationship going forward because that's ideal for us we like to work really closely with everyone that we're partnered with yeah yeah there's a lot that i want to summarize i think you shared that that again is important if i'm if i'm a seller and i'm thinking about this like the conversations that happen outside of the sales calls that i'm doing it's like the stuff that happens afterwards <laughs> you know in in between the sales calls and what i heard is a couple things the distraction the distraction factor is interesting. It sounds like for you, a lot of what's really important is you're thinking, this tool sounds really great, but how long is it going to take to implement? What distraction is that going to create for my team? Because that will take away even temporarily from other stuff. Like we're going, we're implementing HubSpot and I have a tiny company, dude, right now. You know, it's like, it's like me, one other full-timer and then like four kind of full-time virtual assistants. And it's just a nightmare in, like by week right now, <laughs> you know, <I> bet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just like, I can't imagine what that's like across hundreds of people or thousands of people, you know? Um, so the distraction factor, you're thinking constantly of, will what we're doing remove roadblocks from my team? How do I free them up, make their job easier, etc.? And then the other thing, I think this is super important with with people that work at startups, especially, is one thing I heard from you is that you knowing that you as an account will be prioritized and you'll have that personal relationship and that I'm not just another client of yours is super important. And I think that we underestimate how powerful that actually is. Because if you're at a smaller startup selling against someone that's way bigger than you, that is actually a really good selling point that we don't have a thousand clients. Like you're going to get a lot of FaceTime with a lot of the leadership on our team. And we're going to like, you're going to be a big part of the product roadmap. You know, I had a, a Greg, he's the CEO and founder of a company called abstract and it's a conversational intelligence tool. So he's selling against gong and chorus and these other you know, kind of pretty big companies. And that's what we talked about in our interview. That was like, that's a really big selling point for his customers is that they get to be a part of like that product roadmap and stuff. Um, I think that's a really good insight into just how you think. I think that's that's pretty helpful for uh, for the folks listening. Um, I want to shift gears again a little bit. Uh, just you as a prospect, let's say, if you had to just guesstimate, how many emails do you get on a weekly basis? Let's say, like, not just cold emails, but how much? How many <laughs> emails are coming into your inbox if you had to guess on a weekly basis? Oh, at least three or four thousand. Um, oh that, shit! That's also that's also you know because I I have you know a few dozen Owler accounts and so I get updates on probably <laughs> everything that happens in the world of business. Uh, so yeah. I don't read all of those. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh so three to four thousand emails. That's a lot of emails. Uh, how do you? Like, what is your kind of workflow? How do you look at email, treat email? When do you check it? Like, all of these kind of things. I, the reason I'm asking, I think it's important for people to kind of understand kind of how people like you tick because 
people are, they're trying to get in your inbox with a cold email, you know? Right. Um, but how do you kind of look through your inbox, determine what you want to spend time on? How often do you check the inbox? How does, how, do you do it from your phone, the computer? Like, I'd love to, to know how you think about that and, and what, your, what your kind of workflow looks like. Yeah, so we use Gmail. I'm a big Gmail filters and labels user. So yeah. I, have, I have all the, the newsletters, all the typical things, all the you know, Owler things going into their own folders that are categorized and I'll review um, kind of throughout the day periodically. And then my inbox is everything else. And so, you know, in the inbox, that's probably more on the order of three or 400 a week that just go into the inbox itself. Mm -hmm. And so a much more manageable number. And if you're in the inbox, it's at least getting read. Um, But, you know, my my email consumption is primarily on the computer. So I'll, I'll wake up in the morning, log in, take a look at my inbox, see what's there, see if anything needs to be dealt with urgently. Um, if so, you know, that's obviously top priority. Otherwise, you know, there, there's a long to-do list of other things to get to that I'll start working on. And then I'll check a couple more times. Um, usually, you know, kind of late morning before, before taking a break for lunch. Um, also later afternoon. And then, you know, I'll usually check later in the evening as well. And, and all of those are on the computer checking in, you know, is anything urgent? taking priority over anything else ongoing. Great. I'll take action on it. Otherwise, um, you know, it'll kind of get dealt with later in the day, kind of in that later time period. And, you know, my process for going through the emails is I'll look at the subject line. If it's, if it's sender, I don't recognize, and it's not a compelling subject line or summary. Cause you know, you also get kind of the first sentence typically in Gmail then um, I, I may not open it at all. It may just get you know archived. So I, I will have read that part, but it'll just get archived in Gmail. And otherwise, I'll actually dig in and read it. Uh, you know, and what I will say, especially to this group, is anything that's like, I set up a meeting for us at two p.m. <laughs> that for sure gets gets archived immediately yeah. because I know those aren't you know real in any in any sense, and someone's yeah. not really done their homework. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things you said that, that are super important. You will look at the subject line and the preview, that first line of the email, and oftentimes that will be the determining factor of whether you reply because you may not even open the email right. because of that. Um, one of the things that uh, we had a guest, Will Allred, runs a company called Lavender. It's a, like an email tool for salespeople. And I'll steal his term. It's internal camouflage is what he uses. And I talk a lot about how do we make emails look more like they're coming from a person and look more like how someone would email someone that they know internally? And I'm curious what it is for you because when I email people that I know, um, whether that's like you setting up this podcast or like the sponsorship stuff we're doing with Aller, like for example, and I'm working with Derek and Alex, if I need to set up a meeting, It'll just say meeting. That'll that'll be the the subject line. <laughs> hey, Derek and Alex, let's get a meeting. Let's get thirty minutes to uh, plan the webinar that we have coming up. Are you free at any of the times below? It's very different email style than a lot of the cold emails. They're so formal, and right. like it feels and just looks. Everything just screams. I'm an outsider. I don't know who you are. Type of thing. Right. I'm curious for you. 
if you don't mind sharing your internal email style, like how formal do you communicate when you're sending emails to your team or people do you know? What does that typically look like in terms of subject lines, body of the email? Do you say hi, hey at the beginning? Is it cal capitalized letters in the subject line? Like how do you how do you even do that? Yeah, not particularly formal, although you know, I, I guess that that may differ. Um, you know, for for different people's styles, I you know I do open with hi and the name and or you know names, um, mm-hmm. depending on on who it's being sent to and. And then the content, you know, it'll relative be relatively short and quick, um, you know, unless it's a, a big team wide update or something like that. And so, yeah. and then closing with, um, you know, just, just thanks or best and, and name. So, you know, pretty simple, pretty, pretty clean. I am going to be a little contrary here though. I get, uh, turned off from sales email when I know I don't know someone and they're being overly casual. Um, so that I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm pretty unique in that, but like, if someone's like, Hey Tim, you know, let's set up a meeting at 2 PM. Like, I I don't know who this is. I don't know what the content is. You know, there needs to be more and there needs to be some value or reason for me to engage in. That's a little too casual. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a little too casual. (laughs) (laughs) Like obviously Jason, like if I get an email from you that literally said that, I'd be like, great, let's hop on. No problem. Because I already know you and we have that report. Right. Versus just out of the blue. Um, which (laughs) I literally got one of those this morning and I was thinking about this call and I was like, "Mm, bad time to send this because I'm literally going to call this out when I speak to Jason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you could definitely take it too far for sure. What are some of the things like as you're parsing through the three, 400 emails that you get, I'm sure there's a lot of cold emails sprinkled in there. Can you think of uh, some uh, emails that you've replied to uh, and just kind of generally what made them replyable to you? Even if you didn't decide to forward that on to someone or you didn't want to take a meeting necessarily, what made it repliable to you? So I think the first level of repliable, um, oddly enough, is actually incorrect information. <laughs> I have this innate desire to want to correct it of like, hey, Tim, I know your competitors are, you know, Dun and Bradstreet, Zoom Info, and, you know, Apple Computer. And it's like, no, hey, that's, you're, you're way off base. Um, and you should probably find some better information. Maybe Owler's a good thing to check out. So I will reply to those, but more out of a desire to, you know, just help people actually do the right research. And, and be correct in things. And I think that that is a viable strategy to kind of make intentional mistakes to build replies in certain ways. Um, you know, I know Segment has done that in a lot of their advertising of, you know, on the sides of buses and stuff, you know, in San Francisco, it'll say, you know, hey, LA, I hear it's, you know, going to be cloudy today or something like that. And it's very clear that they know they're advertising in San Francisco. They're grabbing your attention by that. Um, yeah you know, intentional mistake. And so that's one level. The other, which, you know, is my personal favorite and will garner the most replies or forwards is actually providing value of, you know, proving that someone's done their research, there's a real business case here, and it doesn't have to be overly formal or, or, you know, an immense amount of work, but like, Hey, I know that you're in this space. I, um, you know, can make an educated guess that you're facing these types of problems here's why we can help. And, you know, here's a business case or here's why one of your 
um, you know, one of your competitors or maybe not even competitors, but someone else in your space has leveraged our technology or our solution to help with this, that becomes a lot more interesting. Um, because it's like, okay, this is going back to building a relationship and knowing that the vendors you're working with are willing to do that. That's the first step in, in building that trust, right? It's like, okay, this, this isn't just going to be, you know, one of a thousand duplicated emails. This is going to be, you know, a, a partnership if we end up pursuing this together. Yeah. So well-researched it, there's just no question that this was meant for you. Some sort of clear, hey, people like you that we work with or people that we're seeing are experiencing some of these challenges. If you are, here's how we might be able to help. Some sort of actual customer story, something like that. Um, love that. The incorrect info is is an interesting one. That's the, uh, again, I'll, this is from Will. I learned from him. Uh, he calls them unsure tones. And they actually found in their platform that the reply rates when you use those are about three to four times higher when you say stuff like, hey, um, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, right. but it looks like you're competing with Zoom Info and whatever the other companies were that you dropped. <laughs> Apple yeah. would be a really weird one to drop in there. Um, right. uh, hey, correct me if I'm wrong. I might be mistaken, but like, uh, did I get this wrong? Question mark. You know, like stuff like that where you're inviting yourself to be corrected. What I'm hearing for you is that you, that actually you like to do that. <laughs> you, yeah, we you like, like to. Correct. <laughs> I mean, it also shows that someone can be worked with as opposed to like, hey, I know everything yeah. and here's why you must buy my solution, yeah. which yeah, yeah. Is, is much more collaborative, which I appreciate. No, I love that. Um, so outside of email, do you ever pick up cold calls? Do you, do you ever respond to LinkedIn messages? What other channels do you, do you typically respond on? We're giving people the playbook to like, Cold hey, outreach, you right? <laughs> all. Let's see. Um, I don't pick up my phone. Um, yeah. I get way too many calls. And, you know, I, if it's unknown, I think, I don't know, a year or so ago, Apple launched the functionality to auto silence any unknown numbers. And so that happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there's a voicemail, I'll listen to it and check it out. But most salespeople these days don't leave voicemails. I think that's the kind of instruction book for most folks is to not do it. And, um, you know, if, if anyone just keeps trying me, it'll just keep going to voicemail and there'll never be any connection yeah. via phone in my case. Um, LinkedIn occasionally, same, same deal as what we were talking about for, for email though, of like, if there's not content that's worth engaging with, um, you know, the quantities are too high to reply to everything for me. Um, and so, you know, if it's really, really engageable, then I will otherwise, you know, those will those will kind of get archived as well. Yeah. So I think you mentioned something very important there too, is that you will at least click play on most of the voicemails that you receive just to see what it's about. And you might delete it real quick, but uh, do you get, uh, do you have like voicemail trans transcription, uh, visual voicemail or whatever it's called set up? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to say, it's not always clicking play. It might just be reading that snippet. Yeah. So what's really interesting, there was some data, I'm forgetting who it was, uh, but it was somewhere around 80% of voicemails get opened. They don't always get listened all the way through, but they get opened. And I think there's a really important lesson there in that most people, it's my same experience too. I, I don't pick up my phone. I know that sounds kind of ironic because I teach salespeople how to make cold calls. Phone is not the place to reach me and neither is LinkedIn, even though I'm very active on there. It's email. It's just easier 
to manage, you know? Um, but I will always check voicemail. I will always read the transcription. I'll always do that. Every single voicemail that I get will always get that amount of attention. And I think it's a really underrated play for a rep to leave a really good voicemail. You know, uh, hey, Tim, no need for a callback. I sent you an email about the work we're doing with XYZ companies that are running into these problems. The subject line is uh, outbound squad <laughs> you know, or whatever, um, or subject line's Aller or Aller competitor. Check it out. Give me a reply if it's relevant. All good if not. Like using the voicemail as a way to just like almost create a, like a notification or, or to bump, you know, the email, so to speak, um, I think is a really underrated play. That uh, is brilliant. Frankly, right now, like that used to happen too, right? And yeah. and I feel like we go in these cycles of everyone does one thing, it gets too noisy, mm-hmm. it'll start to get ignored. I haven't gotten an, a voicemail like that in years at this point. That would definitely catch my attention. You can do it in 20 seconds. Be super short. It'll show up as maybe three sentences in the visual voicemail transcription. Um, we're out of time. This flew by. I, I think there's some really good insight into just sort of how you think um, about bigger kind of ticket purchases and like the thinking behind them that's really helpful. And then also just you as a prospect. I think it's really important to understand hey, when you send a cold email to an executive, uh, you're one of like several thousand emails that they're getting that that week. <laughs> just keep that in mind, you know, and being really just obvious. Uh, I always say, uh, make the implicit explicit. Be really obvious about why you're reaching out and why you see a, a potential fit. Um, but it's been great. Uh, any uh, place that people can go, like where can people go to check more information out about Aller, about you, all that other kind of stuff if they want to learn more? Yeah, so Aller, just Aller.com, O-W-L-E-R. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn um, and and also via email or or hit me up on voicemail. As, you know, see if anyone takes that play. 